0: Hey there, welcome to the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline. I'm the founder of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives to see what makes them tick and see how they got where they are today. So sit back, relax. I look forward to sharing their journey with you. All right. Welcome. Welcome back. Christian, so great to have you here. Thank
1: you for having me, man. It's a
0: pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we start by you telling people what you do? And I almost always do this, but with you in particular, this is going to be a real interesting conversation because you tracked a path I explored early on in my career, but you went deeper. So why don't we start first with what you do now? And then I want to back that up into some of your education and your training because you went pretty deep there.
1: Right. Nowadays, I have my own company, my own studio in Barcelona. Uh-huh. What I'm aiming to do is to hit three different things, which are three things that have kind of always defined me as a student and as an artist and as a professional throughout my career, which is obviously doing visual effects and learning, but also creating. So the idea is that we're consistently creating our own IP. And then the third thing is education, which has been a part of my career since I was good enough to educate, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing pretty much all of the time. I'm still teaching in other places. So I teach at the Barcelona Academy of Art, which is, you know, where I'm still able to tie in traditional teaching there. I teach sculpture and anatomy there. You do the clay work yeah, there? clay sculpture and then anatomy lectures. And then I teach echo for six months a year, you know, which is working in clay, but sculpting the figure, just starting from the bones and then the muscles on top of that. And then as and when it's appropriate, I'll still go into London to teach like a Last week, I was doing a, an NASCAR workshop for Framestore, So, you know, oh, nice. trying to balance those, those two things out. And then, are you doing a lot of freelance on top of that? No, any freelance work that I'd get, I'd try and run through the company. You know, and nowadays, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do is, you know, because I have my own artists to train up, I would rather them do the work and then me supervise and focus on other things. That's interesting. All right. So, you have a team that you work with? Yeah, we're really small. In my company, with five people, and then we have a small team of outsourcers that any overspill will go to. That's great,
0: and uh, located in Barcelona, so you're dealing with the EU customers, or are you also doing North America?
1: Yeah, I was freelance for five or six years or something. You know, mm-hmm. after I left Double Negative, out, I, I was freelancing for a long time. And so then I was just building up a client base. So actually my client base is from what I built up then, which is largely London-based customers, you know, um, indie film produced and things like that. And then a few a few LA side. Yeah, we actually have no Spanish customers that I can think of. It's just a happenstance that we ended up in Barcelona. You know, it was a good place to raise a family. And then there's the academy there, which I had close ties to, and mm-hmm. a couple of film schools that I taught at as well.
0: Tell me a little bit about those ties, because you're atelier trained, I'd say, yeah? Yeah,
1: yeah. What what does that mean to be atelier trained? So it means going through the academic system, which is the 19th century way of approaching figurative art. Fine art, let's say, because it would cover landscape and still life as well. So in that respect, if you look at the whole history of art, it's a relatively new approach. It's not it's not the same techniques that, for example, Michelangelo would have been using or the ancient Greeks would have been using. It's a very regimented academic approach to studying art, which has enjoyed something of res- resurgence in the last 10, 15 years, thanks to the Florence Academy of Art. And then, mm-hmm. you know, all of the offshoots you've seen from that, like spores or something, you know, going around the world. I mean, whether that's artistically your style or not is another thing. But in terms of the kind of work we do, whether it's visual effects, games, other forms of entertainment, a large part of what we need to do is to be able to look at something and work from it diligently. You could say copy it, but that's the wrong way of looking at it. But to be able to work to a very, very high level of accuracy, that's where the Atelier method really stands out. It has its downsides because it limits creativity, because students can get trapped in copying. But for a lot of my career, what allowed me to progress was the ability to just look at a thing and make it like the thing. And that's coming from the Atelier way of working. Yeah, got it. There's an interesting
0: thing that happened to me early in my career. I'm not a Telier training. I was trained at Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, which then was the New York graduate school had come up just a couple of years before I went to paffa So it was like mm-hmm. the only place I could go to find traditional training. And even then it wasn't traditional. It was like, it was just like three traditional teachers, <laughs> right. you know, but we had casts. We had casts Napoleon yeah. Semper. We had a cast of Michelangelo's David. We had a cast of the Lacawan and mm-hmm. a couple of other things. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I came to Hollywood to study, and uh, I was in an interview towards the end of my time studying digital stuff. I had an interview with somebody out of DreamWorks, and I was showing him my portfolio, and he and there was a storyboard thing they were looking at, and you know I could draw, but storyboarding I it just was painful. And so mm-hmm. there was this one scene where it's like somebody puts their foot into a puddle, and the guy goes, well, you're supposed to – When they put their foot in the puddle, you just put like little, um, make it like splashes of water coming out of the puddle. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, fuck, how do I draw splashes? (laughs) I'm going to have to go get some time lapse reference and then I'm going to be copying some splashes. So I just ask him, I'm like, how do you draw splashes? And he looked at me like I was an alien (laughs) and just like quickly scribbled a couple of like little lines that showed, you know, cartoony lines. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm such an idiot, you know. And
1: right before this, this guy's like, oh, yeah, your drawing's really good. And then afterwards, he's like, next. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there in terms of the trap that's waiting for you, right? If you study things in a certain way. And, yeah, like for me, my ability to copy stuff was a useful asset, like I say. But nowadays, when I'm teaching, even teaching in an atelier, I'm trying to teach in a way that allows for that, allows for let's say, the storytelling aspects to it. Because that's essentially, I think, what you're talking about, right? It's like when you have the foot splashing in the puddle, it's kind of like you can think about it in terms of how do I convey this in the most accurate way possible? And that's going to take you down a rabbit hole that will take you quite a long time. And the other way of looking at it, which is especially relevant for storyboards, but it's relevant for, Jesus, everything, is like, well, how do I convey the story of that as efficiently as possible? And so now when I'm teaching anatomy, when I'm teaching figurative art, That's my number one thing that I'm going to. You know, when people would come to my class and think that, okay, here we're going to learn really accurate anatomy because the guy's been teaching it for this many years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And not at all, right? It's how do we convey the story in the most simplest terms and disregard everything else? And I think whether that's storyboards, whether it's figurative work, whether it's Jesus' music, poetry, it's all following the same sort of thing. You go, what is the thing that I'm trying to convey? And anything that doesn't allow you to convey that, you just strip it off brutally, you know, with great prejudice. And yeah, I think that's the thing that a lot of us miss out at the start of our journey. Certainly, for sure, I did. Yeah,
0: and we, you go in with great intentions. I want to be good. You come out and you're like, well, you know, in the entertainment industry, you got to work fast. So in terms of your clients and the people you work with, are you working with game companies, film companies, uh, ad agencies? You know, what uh, kind of market do you work
1: in? Yeah, nearly always film. That's my passion. That's what I've chosen to pursue. Mm -hmm. And when I left Double Negative, it was, well, with a certain sense of reluctance because I was, you know, having a a great time there. But I really felt like this process limits the creative spirit to some degree. I think that's the problem that visual effects in general games. I don't know. It's been so long since I did any games work. But certainly in visual effects, because you end up with these such big sprawling teams and big sprawling shows, it's very, very difficult to carry any creative voice throughout that. And in a sense, it's almost more useful to crush the creative voice of people doing the work because you need the creative voice of the director or the producers or the writer or whoever it is to carry through. Mm -hmm. So I felt like if I'm serious about being an artist rather than a technician, I want to explore that to the fullest extent that I can. And I also felt like, To do something like creature work, which has really been my bread and butter for most of my career, you don't need a huge team to do that. You don't need a huge team to do most of this stuff, to be honest. You just need to go as directly as you can to where you need to be. So I left that with the intention of winning small shows, which is what I was doing, right? I would work on these like no budget indie films, and that would allow me to do the concept and then take that through to the build and then take that through to shots and just explore that and, you know, to have some sort of voice that carries through which I could have in working in visual effects as a supervisor, but still my voice would be no more than a squeak. And that's okay. I don't mind that. But like, again, you kind of at some point have to make the decision whether or not what is the thing that you want to get most out of the work that you're doing. And for me, if I'm creating, that's all. Or creating and teaching and learning. As long as I can tick all of those boxes, man, I'm happy. So, So, yeah, the question was what was... I don't remember the question, (laughs) but maybe the answer's in there somewhere. Who knows? (laughs) What are you creating?
0: What is art now for you? You know, it's something I've been kind of struggling with at different stages because, you know, when you go into digital, it's such a product-focused area. It's almost like being a goldsmith back in the 1400s. It's like, you know, you're not a sculptor. You're making things for rich people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think I've made peace with that, you know, to a large extent. So what I am, the extent to which I'm an artist, I guess, is defined by the client. Some of them will want that and will just want you to have as much say as you can bring to the table. Yeah. And some of them won't and, you know, everything in between. And, you know, I learned really early on the first character I ever did was for a Sony game called. Uh, it was uh, it was some kind of racing game where you could smash into. I, I can't remember. But anyway, it was like a fun a Mad Max style racing game. And I remember doing the first character that I did for that and just poured everything into it. Uh, I was doing that as a freelancer, you know, that was when I was studying in Florence and I would freelance on the side. And I remember sending it to a client and being like, they're gonna be loving this because it's, you know, it's the game <laughs> stuff, but I'm also putting in everything that I know about sculpture and whatever. And the feedback was, the thing that killed me was the feedback, it wasn't that it pointed out a bunch of things that I'd got wrong, but it was a bunch of things that I disagreed with. And man, I couldn't sleep, I was just like, how could they do this to, my, to this character that I've been working on for so long, blah, 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 blah. And so that was, you know, it was from that point onwards that I went, wait, this isn't me as an artist. This is me as a technician. And like, as long as I'm learning and creating, then I'm kind of fine with that. But obviously, if I'm choosing my own personal path and if I'm setting up my own company, I wanted to facilitate my ability to create as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So work might be, ideally work would be, um, and most of what we do is someone would come through with a concept and I would either do the concept or supervise one of my guys doing the concept and then build the asset as well. For me, that's the key thing that we miss in visual effects so much of the time we get delivered a concept and then it's like, well, the guys figuring out how it moves have no contact with the concept artist. So for me, keeping that as one unified flow or something like that from concept through to final shots is pretty vital. So that's the majority of what we do, creature design, concept right the way through. And then also like, you know, I'm creating educational content when I can. And one of the things that I wanna do as a company is be turning around short films, and uh, Mm -hmm. making educational content based off of that. So our first short is now in post-production. And so this little guy down here, you can see this is, um, so this this is me trying to have my cake and eat it in terms of exploring myself as an artist because I write a film uh, with my friend who's a writer and then I do the storyboards, which I work through with another friend who's a storyboard artist. And here I'm going, well, you know what is a pain for me as a concept artist is a problem that I've had multiple times when I do a concept and then it goes into a special effects studio where they need to do a practical version of the concept and mm-hmm. uh, we have no communication like the special effects world and the visual effects world are treated as completely separate entities right the special effects world is seen as like the old guard who are holding on to this noble but dying art form and the visual effects guys are the arrogant young guys and whatever and so there's kind of uh, some resistance on both sides and as a result what I find is they consistently would take our concept and then tweak it so that they have ownership of the concept and whatever. And my approach has always been like, wait, (laughs) I can sculpt and I make creatures. What difference does it make if I'm doing it in clay and silicon or if I'm doing it digitally? So, but of course that would be quite difficult to convince a client about. So with this film, I deliberately created like, so this will be a 10 minute short film. I deliberately created something that would be part digital and part practical right so Mm -hmm. that we kind of get the best of both worlds because I think as well from a visual effects point of view that's what you want really just like whatever makes the thing work and digital by itself is not enough to have any real heart so then yeah so then I set this up so that I could make a puppet and learn about making a functional puppet because I'd never done it before but I just figured well it must be doable you know like I'm not keen on hyper specialization in terms of setting boundaries even in digital between like modeling and texturing and rigging even whatever. I'm just like, look, just create, man. I just learn that skill of creation. That's what I saw the guys doing in the Renaissance, learning painting and architecture and sculpture and all those things. Just get to the heart of that and then figure out how to apply it to different things. So this is kind of like my way of being an artist in film because like I say, film is, is one of my passions. And then at the same time, because I'm always going, okay, I want to learn, create, and educate. How do I do all of those things? At the same time, we'll be creating educational content on doing visual effects for a short. So that would cover prepping a shot for visual effects. would cover doing the creature work and stuff like that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's something that we'll release alongside the film. So
0: That sounds great. Yeah, I've noticed you've ramped up some of the tutorials
1: over there. What, is it Screen uh, Clay? Sc- I that's, got confused. Yes, Screen Clay is, uh, is the name of my company. Yep. So a lot of this stuff here is related to tutorial series that I'll be doing. And that stuff, I just, um, yeah, if you go to my website, screenplayfx.com, and go to the educational section of that, that's all there for free, because it's just, this is the kind of stuff that I would want as a student. So it's, if I'm in a position to be able to put that out and to help anyone else out, then great. So this guy, for example, is a study from a Raphael drawing, because I did a um, series on anatomy from the masters and just like how they were using anatomy, which is... Oh, I, I know think- this drawing. Yeah, absolutely. You know i think like the, the way that these guys would use anatomy is the way that i think is the way that it should be used which is i think somewhat different to the way we would study it in atelier so here for example this is after rubens mm-hmm. um and, you know when you see how the way rubens uses anatomy it's just it's not accurate man it's just insane he'll like take an egg shape and that's his symbol for tension and so for something like this where you have two guys fighting he's just like throwing eggs all over the place and you know <laughs> in doing this study it took me a long time to unlock that natural resistance to just go mad with it you know and then I don't know it was maybe half an hour before finishing i probably had a coffee or i was tired or something and i just went okay jesus boom let's go for it you know and there you can start to appreciate the power of how he was using anatomy and even when he was trying to be correct he generally wasn't because that knowledge didn't exist at the time you know you think of the equashay figures that you can get on your desk and they're going to be pretty accurate and look beautiful or the all the books you can get that's relatively new. You know, you go back to Da Vinci. He's having to cut up people to try and figure it out. You go back before then. The information just doesn't exist. So rather than thinking about things from a technical point of view or from a medical point of view, right? They would just go straight mm-hmm. to story. And that's, you know, that's coming back to your water drops. It's just like, how do I sell this idea, regardless of the accuracy or whatever?
0: And you can get, uh, you've got
1: Zebra open, right? Yeah.
0: Can we get up uh, and, and explore that concept in ZBrush? Because, you know, this is, I think, one of the hardest things for us to understand. And it's trivialized by comments like the Picasso quote, like you have to know anatomy, you have to know before you can forget it and all of that stuff. But what the hell does that really mean? Right? It's like, yeah, to know something before you forget it. Can we get a little bit more clarity in terms of the steps? And I see it with Carlos Fuentes. I don't know if you know Carlos. Yeah. I've run a couple of classes with him. And one of the first classes, he actually had people just create beans. And yeah. I don't mean human beings. I mean, just like a bean. And then your instruction was to put shapes in there and not make muscles. Everybody yeah, made yeah. muscles, of course, but you know that was the instruction. And the goal is, is how do you get something that has, how do I say it? For him, if I remember correctly, the goal was to just loosen the hold reality has on you so that you have more yeah. aesthetic possibilities, right? And I think that's along the lines of what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, you know, like the first question that I will ask people, I'm just gonna bring up uh, a friend of mine who is just like one of the best figurative sculptors alive. I
0: always botch his second like, name. The, uh, this guy's a friend of yours, because then yeah, I need to come see you, and we need to go see him because his work, it, he is easily one of the best guys out there right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so he. This is amazing. I, I love this the, work. At the Barcelona Academy now and again. Yeah, and so the last time he came to the academy, he taught two classes. They were abstract design and composition. You know, he mm. could choose like whatever, right? He could construct a, whatever he wanted just for the sculptor students. The things that he chose that he thought would be most relevant were abstract design and composition mm-hmm. and storytelling. <laughs> and he doesn't know anatomy, you know? Like, uh, I mean, it's like, <laughs> like he knows the human body, right? So he was obviously like delicate in, in talking this through with me when we first met because he yeah. knew I was the anatomy teacher there and he didn't just want to shit on the idea of studying anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> But like, I think, you know, we see it in the same way. And, and his approach yes. is like, look, he wants to look at things. Okay, so he's telling me this story about like, you know, cause he was sculpting forever. And, and as a kid, he was obsessed with ancient Greek sculpture. And one of his teachers said to him like, look, you're looking at everything through the lens of Greek sculpture, right? Whereas what you should be doing is looking at everything through the lens of nature, right? And then if you look at Greek sculpture in that way, You see how they were pursuing that, right? So that becomes the fundamental source for everything.
0: And Mm -hmm. if I can uh, paraphrase there, instead of looking Mm -hmm. through the lens, you're trying to get closer to reality so you can see the lens. You can see the distortions and the artifice that Greek sculpture had.
1: Yeah, it's like instead of chasing them, you chase what they chased, right? Right. Yeah, and that's essentially it. They're going to nature and they're going like, I am a human being and I'm going to die and I'm in nature and what do I make of all of that? And that's fundamentally what art always points to in one way or another, right? So if you end up chasing them, then you're kind of like one step removed from what you should be doing as an artist. So of course, like Jagort's affinity with the human body here is amazing, but he's making sure that he's approaching it in a way that he is the master and he is in control of it. And his thought is that, Well, I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth here, but essentially that anatomy can be a way of restricting you from going to that. I agree that it can. For me, one of the things I say to my students a lot of the time is like the worst thing that you can do as an anatomy student is then go on to make anatomical sculptures. You know, because it's like you now know all of these muscles and bones and things like that. So you want to demonstrate to the world that you know them, whereas Mm. that's not what nature looks like. Right.
0: Yeah. It's an especially uh, significant issue here because if you're doing this for a career like Carlos suffers you know mm. he has to deal with issues all the time where his creativity is just shot down yeah yeah you know and he's usually I mean Carlos is Carlos he's, he's got a particular attitude to these things that probably is part of that but um at the same time you know it's like you know we're existing in a world that wants a product
1: yeah that's the thing that I think like if you don't make peace with that then that's probably a very good sign as your strength as an artist but it's a miserable kind of existence, right? Because yeah, you're not accepting that ultimately you're delivering a service. So I think for me, that was a very important lesson to learn and to accept. It's still, of course, always painful, but you know, when you have an attachment to something you're doing, but for me, I just like, you know, if I can enjoy the creation side of it, like I I don't normally watch the films that I work on, you know, they're normally not very good films or whatever, but if I can get as much out of working on them as I possibly can, then that's a win for me. And then I can take that to my own journey, my own studies as an artist. So to kind of loop what we're saying into some kind of practical application of it. So through here, for example, like let, let's say that I'm that I'm gonna block in an arm, right? Which is what I'm looking to do. One thing that, it took me a long time to realize this. And what surprised me was when I realized it and then I would talk to other artists, they had found the same way in or they'd come to this similar conclusion, but from a different way in. Um, Jagort's again was an example of this where I was sitting down with him and, and saying like, well, it feels like everything ultimately comes down to this balance between order and chaos, right? And when you look at nature, you see that time and time and time again. And if you wanna be able to render something that feels like it exists in the world, whether that's a photoreal human, whether it's an animal that you've made up from imagination, whatever it is, you need to understand that kind of balance, right? So then anytime when I'm looking at something from an anatomical point of view, I'm kind of asking that question. So for example, let's, uh, well, let's see, are we even proportionally close here-ish? All right, so let's take a look at the deltoid, for example. All right. there's hopefully a clear practical example of what I'm talking about. So the, the name deltoid comes from the Greek symbol delta that gives us something of the pattern that we could expect, right? Because it's a triangular shape. And then we can find more of a pattern, right? We can break it down into like three teardrop shapes, something like that. So you see that pattern repeating. And by the way, like if you, if you look at the hips, you can see that same one, two, three pattern, right? Uh, Intense fasciae latae, the gluteus medius, gluteus maximus, follows the same sort of rules. So these patterns exist, and as human beings, we have a very, very keen eye to spot them. But if you have a pattern without allowing that pattern to break, you're not going to be able to make something feel natural. And that you can learn that through studying the human body, really. That's, for me, what you would study the human body for. But you could learn it from a horse, right, or from a, a leaf or something like that. So in this case, you know, we have these one, two, three teardrops, and we go, well, where is the variety there? How does the pattern break? As soon as you ask that question, the answers will start to come you know, with some study. So you know, the head of the humerus pushes out here, for example, that gives us a roundedness at the front and a flatness on the back, right? So that's one juxtaposition. We have rounded playing off against flat, or the heads of the muscles are pointing towards the front, or at least the medial and posterior ones, and this anterior one dives underneath there. So that gives you that S-curve, and it also breaks the symmetry between the muscles. And then you know if you want to get tricky about it you have the fact that these muscles are kind of braided in the middle and you know you can study this to the nth degree but ultimately that's the thing that you're going to find in nature and like it's just anatomy books tend to focus on just the well there's this shape and there's that shape and it's like well that's there is a limit to what you can learn from that Mm -hmm. whereas if you go but you can take this stuff like as deep as you could possibly want to go And you don't have to do that through anatomy. You know, that's why I use Jake Orts as an example. He just uses the human body, right? And that takes him to just like, what, this pure essence of design. Um, For me, I got to that point through anatomy, but it really doesn't matter. So anytime you're approaching your study from nature, find the pattern, find where the pattern breaks. And that's, you look at things through that lens and suddenly, wow, you start to discover how you can make things alive. Mm -hmm. So another example here might be the humerus, we would say is, what, one and a half heads long, something like that, a bit less maybe. Radius in the ulna, one head long, a little bit more maybe. But still, what you have is a much longer upper arm bone than the lower arm bones. And there's also a tendency, a temptation, to stick that all in one axis. But we have that carrying angle, right, as the elbow breaks through there. So it's like you have the pattern. You have a collection of long bones connected to each other, but the pattern breaks. Right? This upper one is longer than the lower ones. And then when we roll the leg into that, you see the whole pattern of the arm repeated in the leg, but it's flipped. And, you know, like I did, um, I think if you go to the Barcelona Academy section of the tutorials on, on my website, I think there is a, a lecture I gave on taking the arm and mirroring it to get a leg. And it's insane. Like, I just thought I'd. I once to tried to, uh, an experiment lecturing the arm and the leg at the same time because when we crawled out of the sea, they would have done the same thing, right? And mm-hmm. then as we stood upright, they adapted to their different functions, and that gives you the idea of form following function.
0: Yeah. In in your example, did the tricep become uh, the hamstrings, or did it become
1: the uh, the quads? The quads, the quads, yeah. because you flip it, right? And so then uh-huh. then we go, okay, let's take a look at the triceps through here. We have these three separate muscle heads, and the quads we have four separate muscles but they both are attached to a big flat band of tendon right so you have that similarity and then they both attach to a bit of bone that bulges out in this case it would be the olecranon of the ulna in the ah okay well in the quadriceps is kind of different because they're passing over the patella but still you know the similarity is just like bang right there in the face you know but only when you start to look for it and it was a terrible way of teaching by the way (laughs) i i don't recommend that you do it because like because the students were just learning about an arm and then i was trying to you know, I think I was going too deep too quickly, but it's, uh, it's but high I, level. It's high level for sure. But right, awesome. um, but I was having a great time, you know, because like <laughs> for example, the uh, you know I was looking at the humerus and it has like a, a curve like that and it uh-huh. comes forwards, and then you take a look at the femur, man, it's the opposite thing, right? And then it's it's just coming in and curling backwards, you know. And I was just like, Jesus, thing after thing after thing after thing. Uh, you're able to find the pattern, and then you're able to find where the pattern breaks. And for me, like that's a really exciting way of looking at things. So. You know, you're talking about Carlos Fuente. It's the same kind of idea, right? It's like, for me, the approach of studying anatomy is just like at some point you let go of anatomy, right? And I think that's that was our jumping off point here because you were talking about uh, Picasso going like, well, you know, you learn the thing and then you forget the thing. And I would say like, you know, the example of Jugot is, well, you don't need to learn the thing, but if you do learn the thing, then you can see how much there is to get out of it. Maybe another way of looking at it is that Bruce Lee idea of like, Before I studied, a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. And then I started and I realized, like, wow, okay, no, there's a jab, cross, you know, uppercut, hook, all of those things. So a punch was no longer just a punch and a kick was no longer just a kick. And then he understood. And a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick again, right? Because it's all just body movement, really. You know, that's the process of learning anything, I guess. But I I think it really works in terms of, you know, studying how to create a thing.
0: So along those lines then, um, one of the biggest problems people have sculpting any sense of anatomy or form is the is the forearm right Mm -hmm. so how do we apply that so that people can see that you know look you don't really need to know the extensor carpi radialis brevis or you learn about the you know the ulnaris or you know the flexor carpi ulnaris or the fcr the elrb or whatever you know because you go into all these books and you go into goldfinger and it's like here this is the ecrb you're
1: like the ecrb it's an extensor yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) right so i mean of course like you know a good teacher and i know that you'll do it in this way is you just go okay well look you can just simplify these and and group them together and that's you know that's one way of looking at it oh that's a very sensible way of looking at it but to loop it into like i guess specifically the way that i'm thinking about things is, Mm -hmm. is you just go okay well look forget knowing any muscle and just know that what you need is like some kind of operational ability in the arm, right? So, or in any or in any, limb, right? So if you want to bend this arm forward, you need the muscle in front of the arm because all muscles can do is pull. So it doesn't matter whether it's the biceps, the brachialis, it doesn't matter any name or shape or anything. It's just, you need something here and it needs to go to there, right? And the, the first exercise I give my CJMA anatomy students is to go, I give them some made up bones and just go, I teach them about design and function and go make some stuff up. Man, I Mm -hmm. don't want to see humans. I just want you to think about this. Like you were doing a robot, man. I mean, robots are a good exercise really for practicing your anatomy because it stops you just copying the form so much so you can just go, well, I would need to put a piston there and there maybe. That would work to to move that as a hinge. And then, you know, and then to bend it back again, Maybe I would have a piston there and there or something like that, you know, and then that would pull it back, right? So the whole movement of the human body is dictated by that. And once you look at things in that way, it kind of becomes easier to figure out. Like, given that a muscle can only pull, think about all the muscles down your front. If all they can do is pull, they'll pull you towards the front, right? They'll pull your head down or the legs up towards your head, which would form a a C-curve, right? If all of the muscles down your front activated, you would get that C-curve. All the muscles down your back activated you would get a c-curve in the other way your torso would come back your legs would come back so then you don't need to know that the hamstrings pull the leg back of course they do they're on the back of the leg you sculpt whatever you want there you know <laughs> sculpt whatever you want as long as you're following the rules of like does it feel like it's made up of muscle tendon is there skin on top is there fat on top um you know if, if you hit all of those things it doesn't matter if the muscle's accurate you know that's going back to To rubens to michelangelo to guys well michelangelo especially whose anatomy was pretty ropey but it doesn't matter he got straight to the story so then if we come back to what you're asking with the forearms it's like well if i want to bend the hand then i need muscles that are starting above the hand and going into the hand so that's what all the muscles here are doing the one the ones at the front are going to pull the hand towards the front the ones at the back are going to pull it towards the back okay so that gives you your function Right. And, and so then, especially if you're doing, working with pose characters or you're working with characters that are moving like you would in visual effects that allows you to sell the movement of it as well. And you don't like, so, so back here, let's say we fish out our extensors. Right. And that's going to be something like that. Right. You'd have, you'd have extensor digitorum, and then you'd have extensor digiti minimi extensor carpi laris, but who cares, man? So there's three muscles. Put in two, put in five, it doesn't really matter and you never know in life, as long as you have something that's going into the hand to, uh, to extend it, right? So that's kind of looking at things from the functional point of view. Well, and we can go further with that, actually. Let's take it one step further and go, well, you know, as something that's evolved from being in trees, flexing is a much more important action for us, right? That's why the flexor mass is big and why the extensor mass is small. It's not, it's not nearly so important. Okay, so that covers function pretty well. And then, you know, if we cover aesthetics, we either go, where is the pattern and where does the pattern break? Right. We just ask that question. Well, we have one group on the front, one group on the back. That's a pretty good pattern. Where does the pattern break? This one's big, that one's flat. Another pattern that we have is maybe that this more or less follows the line of the forearm. Where does the pattern break? Well, it's not quite following the line of the forearm, right? It's coming from that there and it's more or less going towards the wrist. So that gives you an oblique angle, right? Which, by the way, the biceps also has, right? So that's coming like that. Head, the tendon, the triceps is not following the angle of the humerus. So you get all of these little um, diversions, all of these little deviations that will only appear to you when you <laughs> when you call them, right? When you, when you um, ask to look for them, because otherwise, like, like let, let's say that I make the biceps run straight down the humerus, something like that and then I make the triceps tendon, follow the humerus directly. It's not the worst thing in the world, but the problem is if I do this a thousand times, right, with all the decisions I make on the body and when you're sculpting a body, you're making hundreds of thousands of decisions in real time, then they're all gonna add up to something that's a little bit weaker. And so you go, okay, well, how do I refine that tendency so that I make all the correct decisions? Well, one is that you could memorize everything that gives every muscle and every bone its character and you'll die trying to do that. Or you can know what questions to ask. You can develop a tool set that's gonna allow you to do that, right? And the exciting thing about doing that is that suddenly you're not limited to anatomy, right? So like when I started concept art, that was actually after I was teaching anatomy. But I was like, well, Jesus, it's the one and the same, you know? So that's how I would approach these forms. Um, as well, like our ability to spot pattern is, is pretty powerful. So something that I thought of pretty recently was going, i guess there's a rule of threes on the arm right you have three bones through there and then you have the deltoid that's made up of three parts if you come into the forearm i'm going to ignore the brachialis. you have three muscles that we're interested in biceps brachialis triceps we get down to here there's three masses that we're interested in the flexor mass the extensor mass and the supinators through there if we want to look at the thumb muscles there's three of those and then what have we got left over there's some muscles that we didn't look at. Exactly three, right, the pronated teres, the Anchinaeus back there, and the brachialis. So that's not something I've ever seen in a, in a book, but you can find these patterns, and like I would have a greater propensity to find them than one of my students might, because I've been studying and thinking about it a lot the time, but as soon as I opened this door open to my students and just go, look, there's no rules here, just find stuff that works. Like I steal stuff from them all the time, constantly. Like I remember one student saying, like I was talking about this angle of the biceps here and going, well, look, if we finding the order in the chaos, right? The order is that there are two heads to the biceps through here of similar length. The chaos is that it doesn't follow the line of the humerus and that it goes down lower on the inside than it does on the outside. And the student was like, well, you said that the sternocleidomastoid goes down lower on the inside than the outside and that the quadriceps does and the gastrocnemius, and I was like, shit, yes, I did say all of those things, but I never connected them together to come up with a rule, which is that generally muscle mass goes down lower on the inside than the outside. But as soon as you notice it, you can apply it to anything, right? The tri- Well, not anything, but the triceps does, bulges up high there, bulges mm-hmm. down low through here. You know, So the thing is, is, as soon as you stop allowing yourself to have rules, then you'll open these doors up. You know, So generally, I'll start any class or workshop with why study anatomy, if it's anatomy class, obviously. And the second thing is, is like, you know, so people will have whatever answers they have. The second thing is, well, should we study it in a different way to a doctor? And that, you know, there's interesting answers there, but of course my answer is yes, and that is based off of the fact that we can do whatever the hell we want. That's amazing. Whereas a doctor, you want a doctor to be very concentrated on the finite knowledge. You don't want them expressing themselves through the medium of your spleen or whatever, right? Um, So for me, that would be, yeah, that would be the key difference. So yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. Your question was about like approaching that and yeah, you know, no, it A little bit abstract. That was great. Yeah, that's
0: that's the point. And you know, I think uh, the note on doctors is actually relevant too, because for plastic surgeons, we I'll find plastic surgeons in my classes and different anatomy classes, because that is yeah, when they yeah. need to explain. One of my friends is a breast reconstruction surgeon out in New York, and. Uh, we went into ZBrush and he needed something that would allow him to really explore and sculpt um, the aesthetic aspect of breasts for women that have had mastectomies, things like that, you know? So
1: Yeah, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty interesting. Yes. I guess there is a Ross over there.
0: A little bit. All right. So we've got anatomy here in the arm. We've been looking at the language and the patterns. You said a couple of things that I think are, are interesting. One, you you talked about this idea of order versus chaos. And so it struck me as though Every anatomical item has some element of chaos, some element of order. Is that one of the systems that you use?
1: Yeah, I would say everything in nature has that balance. And that most of us will tend towards order because that's that's the safe thing, right? That's why when people start out sculpting or drawing or painting, they tend uh-huh. to parallel lines, vertical lines, horizontal lines, things that you don't see in nature because that's right. like architectural. That's That's a safe zone. You know, most of us fall into that. Now and again, you get a student that tends towards chaos. I'm trying to figure out what the percentage is. It's like one in 40, I think, something like that. Those guys are powerful They're messy as hell and very difficult to work with in production. But um, but yeah, it's a a powerful kind of thing. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, I would say everything in nature has that balance. And that's a good lens to look at things through. Are you someone who tends towards order or chaos? Well, yeah, I thrive in chaos, actually. So like when I sculpt, I I just make a horrible mess right and I find stuff in that mess so yeah well yeah I I kind of have a bit of both I think like as a student I had a fear I still do constantly have fear that stops me getting to that and yeah if I can break through that and just thrive in the chaos then I'm happy whereas for some students that's obviously like the absolute opposite of what they would want so you kind of I guess you just have to be sensitive to your own self right to your own tendencies and Mm -hmm. work to those to the maximum extent that you can I used to uh, or I, I still do actually talk to students about the idea of classical
0: verse romantic or in painting, because I always use the painting example to help explain this. There's the there's Jean-Jacques-Louis David, neoclassicism, order all the way down to process. Right. There's the cartoon then there's the line drawing. Then there's the tone. Uh, and then you throw color on at the very end. Verse, if you go into like uh, you know, I'm going to murder his name, but if you go into Titian, you can mm. see the period in the beginning part of his life because that guy lived a long ass time and mm. in the beginning period he's very classical and at the end he's baroque very romantic The stro- he goes straight into broken color i doubt there's much drawing on there and that really seems to be these two different ways either the classical or the baroque approach
1: yeah it's, it's an interesting way of drawing a distinction and yeah okay that's something to think about i wonder whether you could track most people's most artists journey from like one to the other potentially you know like how people would start off left-wing and then move to the right the longer they live maybe there's something like that you know like i don't know it could be the the older you get the more you learn to just let loose and maybe you start to be able to control that chaos because you've lived with it for so long um like michelangelo's final sculpture one of the many that he hasn't finished the pieta in milan it's like an abstract piece you know it's so crazy it's so loose and uh, you know he was pretty much blind when he's doing it, but you can just see him just letting go of anything that kind of held him back and just going for pure expression. This is yeah, the one t- with his the arm that well. separated. Uh, no, that was the Pietà in uh, in Florence that uh, he did that when he was younger. The one where he broke it. Um, the the one in Milan is just like from the side view, it's just like a big C curve. It's barely finished because he didn't get that bar in it. And maybe if he had finished, it would have been less abstract. I don't know, but I just it's a fascinating touchstone. That is the
0: one I meant because his arm is kind of pulled away from it slightly.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
0: that's beautiful. So let's walk back into this. Now, what are some of the common mistakes that you see students making in the beginning? I know we've talked a lot about that in terms of, you know, they create order first and stuff like that. But if there's something that specifically for character artists, let's say if there's somebody who's a character artist, they're looking, they don't need their anatomy to show off 100%. It doesn't have to be, say, as faithful as uh, you might in film. So... Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of the things that people can make sure that they really lock down to be able to capture, you know, that 80 percent of the form?
1: Well, so I would say and I know this is going to be kind of abstract, but I'll try and loop it into something concrete. Um, But it's like have a motivating impulse for every single decision that you make or at least be aware of it, because, you know, the thing for all of us. But I especially when a student is you're just going around in circles. You go one day you're going, right, I'm going to move that there and then you open up another bit of reference and you move it back. And you know, when you find yourself on that circular kind of path, it's because you don't know what you want out of it. So you need to have some kind of impulse, right? So like every brushstroke you make, every decision that you make needs to be imbued with that. It's kind of like a poet would not just be putting out random words, everything is there for meaning. So as I'm working with this, it's like, well, if I'm choosing to push the read of attendance through here, it's because I want to convey tension in the wrist or it's because the person is very powerful so those tendons are very taut or it's because the person is old, so the skin is very thin, you know, things like that. So that means that like I'm consistently in control of it. So even if I have like three different four different 10 different reference images up, you know maybe I have my echo J reference over there and then I have, You know, someone who looks kind of like the guy that I'm sculpting over here, and then I have an artist that I'm inspired by over here. It's like, well, what unifies all of those? How do you use them in a way that you can control? And I would say just be aware of what it is that you're trying to convey with each brushstroke. And that can be a material thing. Like it can be, you know, through through here going, okay, well, this is going to be pretty bony through there. So I get out the flattened brush and I make it bony, you know, as opposed to back here where this is going to be loose skin. So it could be something like that, or it could just be like, well, I want the person to feel like really massive, so I need much more muscular mass or whatever. So I think that one of the key things that I see people slipping up on is just not thinking about their work, and then that ties in with another thing, which is not being able to make decisions. And like I don't know, I, I don't, I feel like as teachers we often don't talk about that decision-making part of the process enough, or at least I, I would count myself as doing that. But it's like just just make a decision. You know, with my uh, junior artists, I see them, you know, cause I'm conscious that every minute they spend is costing me money on a thing. So I'm just mm. like, I see them dithering. And I'm like, man, just make a decision. I don't care if it's wrong, just do something because then if it's wrong, you can correct it. Whereas if you haven't done it, you don't know whether it's right or wrong yet. And that will come from fear or ego or a combination of both. Like you don't want to make the mark because if you do, there's a chance that it's going to go wrong. So I would say like make decisions and tie that in with having a reason for making the decisions. What is the impulse for that? You know, and if you can start to think about things in that way, it's going to get you a lot of the way there. You know, and your work's going to feel less disjointed as a result to tie it in with like more practical stuff. Like if we relate it to anatomy for character artists let your characters have some skin you know like especially if you've studied anatomy like fat would be something like 30 percent of the average body or something and skin covers your whole body if you're lucky so give room for that right like if you have some understanding of the anatomy even if you don't have the courage to let it go you know that's a key thing to making things feel realistic like if you're too tied in with every single muscle and bit of sinew or whatever then it's going to take you down a, an unrealistic path, let's say. That's great. A couple of questions
0: I want to ask. I want to first ask about your ZBrush setup, if there's anything specific in your digital sculpting world, and if you're ZBrush-centric, or if you're exploring Blender, or the program which shall not be named. And then I want to get back to anatomy and ask one question there. But with the ZBrush, or your digital sculpting world, is it entirely ZBrush? Yes. Do you have any setup, like any brushes or anything specific that you 100% rely on?
1: Well, I only use like three or four brushes. I'll use standard and inflate and uh, clay tubes and move snake hook a little bit. But to be honest, like, yeah, I think there are better guys. I think you would be an example of this, of people who can help guide students with that from the start because like, I still have bad habits left over from starting with ZBrush to like 13 years ago, whenever that was. And so a lot of the stuff I carry through. So like you'll see me, for example, like, so as a student, I had S as my standard key and that replaces the, uh, the little widget that you get there to change mm-hmm. the scale, to change the size. So what you'll see is like, I'll consistently go up here and lose like a fraction of a second every time I do it. And you think over the years that adds up. So yeah, I'm just not, well, you know, like like we said before I will naturally thrive in in chaos. So having a nice orderly setup is not natural to me. So literally, like I do nothing with the UI. I have my hotkeys for the brushes, and that's it. But I wouldn't say that as like, yeah, you know, I'm just so loose and easygoing that it really doesn't matter to me. I would say, as efficient as you can make stuff, the better. You know, why the hell not? And especially like, you know, and that tendency towards making things nice and neat and proper is vital for production. So like my Maya scenes, for example, they'll be messy as hell, but before anyone else sees or touches that file, if I'm passing it on down the line, it's gonna be spit and span and cleaned, you know? It's the same similar approach to what I have in my sculpture. So yeah, all, all Z brush, but no fancy tricks, just a few hotkeys for for my brushes. Awesome,
0: all right, now back to anatomy, and uh, we've already kind of covered this, but I usually like to ask people like why anatomy, right? Because uh, for me, sometimes I, I think anatomy is a trap, but like I said, we've already discussed that to some extent, mm. but in your view, what's the principal use of anatomy and what's the one thing
1: that you would recommend somebody do if they want to get better at it? That's an interesting question, the, the second part to that. So so for me, you know, I, I guess like as we've been talking about, I guess everything I do Jesus, I know it's going to sound pretentious, but like everything I do is anatomy and everything I do isn't anatomy. And I know that's bullshit, but it's, it's again, tying <laughs> into that that idea of, of like, if you are pursuing that route in the way that I really heartily recommend that you do, then it stops being about anatomy and it just becomes about working with nature and creating stuff from nature. So maybe like I was saying that I'd always start a class with why study anatomy. You know, maybe the question is like, why shouldn't you study anatomy? Because that's going to put a spotlight on, like you say, the, the traps of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a bunch of reasons why not, right? Because then then everything becomes anatomical and it moves you moves you away from nature. Because you think you look at an equashay figure and like, Jesus, that's so alien compared to an actual human, you know? Mm-hmm. Hopefully it is. Like, hopefully you haven't seen skinned humans and things like that. So then it's like what happens is you build up your anatomy knowledge in a separate world, right? You have like this equashay compartment to your head where that's where you study anatomy and you forget to connect it to the real world. So then with the second part of the question, is like, what would I recommend that people do? I would recommend studying the body in movement, in motion. I'm creating a course with, with Proco at the moment, just with this in mind, because I think as uh, certainly as visual effects artists, we have like this real privilege to have to explore the body in motion. So it's like, yeah, maybe, you know, you do your figure in the t pose or whatever, but at some point you're going to have to sculpt some corrective shapes, and at some point you're gonna have to shot sculpt it and you're gonna have to do whatever else. So you're gonna have to know what happens when the arm bends like that, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's something that generally people aren't doing. They're copying the t pose things and they're not thinking about that. And so as soon as I have this as a problem, then I have to think about things in a hopefully a more like a useful way. So I have to go, well, what happens when this bends? How do I tell that story? Well, you know, around the back here, this is where the extension is, right? So, you know, you always have this balance of two forces, and, you know, you can define that how you want. Here, it's simply going to be compression on the front and extension on the back. So, okay, how do you tell the story of, of extension? Well, when it's running over bone, the bone, you know, is really obvious and really sharp and clear through here. Also, because, uh, because the bat and the skin isn't getting compressed, you'll generally actually be able to read the muscle more when it's getting stretched out and getting compressed, right? And then through here, you've got to look at the compression and this is gonna, you know, so for example, here we get skin wrinkles. So, you know, if if you think about things in terms of like, well, you should go for your primary forms and then your secondary forms and then your, your tertiary forms, that's a smart way of looking at things, but it doesn't point you towards a story. So here, the fact that, you know, we might get skin bunching and creasing through there tells me about the story Of the compression that we're seeing through that so I would argue that the bend of that and the sharpness of that that gives that gets in my story straight away right and then I've got to be thinking about the function of it right the biceps will be building up here getting shorter and compressed maybe maybe we can start to see some of the tendon poking out or something like that as it as it's pulling on the muscle so in this Mm -hmm. way you have no option but To think about the actual functionality of it and that's something that you can't do in drawing and you can't do in clay sculpture or painting or anything just take a thing pose it and sculpt it and you know like if i if i got a reel where an artist was showing they could demonstrate that that would stick in my mind you know rather than just another well i guess you don't see reels so much anymore because it's art station stuff but you know it's yeah i think that that understanding demonstrating that you understand functional anatomy i think is a really really good exercise Um, And you can take that through to faces as well, by the way. Like, if you've got a beautiful photorealistic face in your portfolio, then amazing. But if you've got that in a range of facial expressions, then people are going to sit up and take notice because it's showing Mm -hmm. that you understand how that form operates. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I heard about that course. When is that coming up?
1: Uh, When we finish it, man. Um,
0: (laughs) uh, I've heard stories of how that process works. Marshall's working on something there, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, I don't have – well, actually, uh, my producer probably did, probably does have a, an end date for it, but I can't remember what it is. Hopefully not mm. that long, but I've got a ton more work to do. So I think, like, it wouldn't be before six months' time or something like that. Mm.
0: All right. Christian, man, thank you so much for coming in and for sharing your wisdom and giving us the pointers and working directly in ZBrush. It was a real treat.
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me, man. It's been a real yeah. – hopefully it's been useful to, to some guys.
0: Yeah, it's been great. And um,
1: you're in Barcelona now. I
0: just looked at the tickets. Not that yes. much. So, yeah. you know, maybe in April, if you're still around, I'll hit you up. Yeah, yeah, man. Let me know if you're up in town. it'd Be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And uh, good luck in all the stuff. And let me know if I can do anything. But otherwise, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and for giving us this look.
1: Yeah, no, thank, thank you for the opportunity, man. So, and thank you for everyone who's, uh, who's come and watched. And um, and yeah, anyone interested in, <laughs> in anything that I'm talking about, then just um, head over to your art Atlanta. station, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Head over to your art station so they can see that again. Yeah. Sorry, I yeah, usually yeah. point people right yeah. back to that. Head and, I over
1: to that. Um, and like, yeah, if you can, if you can get in touch with me, I'm normally happy to happy to help. You know, sometimes it takes me a while. But but yeah, it's it's like, well, I, I guess I guess, you know, Ryan, it's just like having students, helping students is um, is a different thing to creating. And it's just as fulfilling. So um, yeah. guys, thank you so much for listening, for being here, for your patience, all the rest of it. All right. Take care, everybody.
0: All right, so I want to thank you so much for being here and taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to ask a couple of things from you. Number one, make sure you leave a comment or you rate this on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever that you're listening to this. It really makes a big difference in helping us get the word out and to help people understand what we do. The other thing is, I want to make sure that you know where to find us. Head over to www.vertexschool.com to learn about all the programs that we have for creatives. Our job at Vertex School is to teach you new skills in creative tech and help you get a job that matters to you. We lock in on the specific skills and triggers that people are looking for in the industry and what you need to do to prove that you can do this job. We're taking applications right now, so make sure that you head over to www.vertexschool.com and apply today. All right, again, thank you so much for being here. Have an amazing day.